Welcome to the Talberg Foundation podcast series, New Thinking for a New World. Host Alan Stogo welcomes leaders from around the world to explore the issues that are challenging and changing their societies. From climate change to democracy under siege to geopolitics and beyond, we are looking for ideas that can make all our lives better. Today, my guest is General H.R. McMaster, a highly decorated U.S. military officer, former National Security Advisor, and historian. His first book, Dereliction of Duty, is a must-read account of flawed decision-making in the Vietnam War. His most recent book, Battlegrounds, which has just been published, aims to assess America's place in the world today, and far more importantly, tomorrow. General McMaster, I read your book, and I truly believe it ought to be required reading for whomever occupies the Oval Office uh, next February, as well as whoever occupies your old West Wing office at the same time. Welcome and congratulations on the book. Alan, thank you so much. Thanks for the privilege of being with you. Let me start with the title, which I love because it speaks volumes as titles ought. Battlegrounds. That's not just a title, but it's actually a summary of the book itself. As I read your book, you describe a world that's a dangerous place where the United States confronts not only competitors, but enemies where we need to assess those enemies unemotionally, understand our interests realistically, define and execute strategies consistently. And if we fail to do those things, we're going to lose. Is that a fair summary? I, I think that does sum up that really the, the main argument in the book is that, is that there are critical competitions underway in the world uh, that will determine our future. And we have to compete much more effectively if we're going to build a better future for generations to come, a future of peace, security, and prosperity. And what I describe in the book is how we, we really kind of lost our competitive edge over the years, especially in the, in the post-Cold War period, based on, on flawed assumptions, flawed assumptions about the nature of the world, uh, as well as, as flawed assumptions about the nature of these very competitions. And, and what undermines us oftentimes is our, is our inability to view these complex competitions whether it's with a China that is exporting its, its authoritarian status model or a, a Russia that's trying to drag us down or, or, or jihadist terrorists who, who use mass murder of innocents as their principal tactic in a war against all civilized people. We don't view these complex challenges from the perspective of the other and try to understand what are the emotions, the aspirations and the ideology that drive and constrain our competitors. Why do you think so few people are willing to look at a world objectively, the world you just described, as opposed to channeling sort of an age of Aquarius view that we are all one humanity? What, what is it about our leadership, broadly defined, that shies away from that more hard-edged view of a world? I think at its base, it's wishful thinking, right? It's, it's wishful thinking uh, based on, uh, on this term that I, I, I use in, in, in Battlegrounds, strategic narcissism. It's our tendency as Americans toward optimism bias. And okay, that's understandable. But it, it's also reinforced this idea of strategic narcissism is at its base, our tendency to define the world only in relation to us, and then to assume that what we will do will be decisive to a particular outcome. And I believe that this tendency was reinforced by the perception that we, we had ended up on top at the end of the Cold War, right? We'd won the Cold War, the Soviet Union collapsed. We had this lopsided uh, military victory over Saddam Hussein's army 
and the Gulf War uh, in 1991. And then I think what crept in, what crept in is sort of the foundation of our foreign policy across the 1990s and into the 2000s was this idea that an arc of history had guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems. And Alan, is what, what you're alluding to is this idea that ideological competition was over and what would replace you know, great power rivalry, what would replace these competitions would be some form of global governance. And and, and a condominium of, of nations would work together on, on our greatest problems. And as a result, we, we vacated arenas of competition that are really critical to our future. You make an eloquent case for setting and sustaining long-term strategy in order to guide America through the world that you describe. Unfortunately, we're obviously not very good at that. And, and that is irrespective of party, uh, irrespective of administration, and arguably, it has been going on for a few decades now. There used to be a consensus underlying foreign policy. We both remember the days when policy, politics stopped at the border. And when you looked at the rest of the world, there was a consensus underlying the kind of interaction with the rest of the world, what we wanted from the rest of the world, how we would deal with that. Well, I think you put your finger right on, on the heart of this problem. We are unable to implement a sustained, reasoned, long-term approach to foreign policy and to national security. And a reason for that is this idea of narcissism, how self-referential we have become. And because we don't study the challenges that we're facing, we don't understand them as well as we should, we have allowed our foreign policy to be defined mainly by domestic partisan politics. And what has, I think, become the norm now is that is that any administration that comes in defines its foreign policy mainly as in opposition to the previous administration's foreign policy. And I think what, when you look really from this decade of the 1990s to today, and what the book does is it tries to take the approach of understanding how the recent past produced the present as the first step of really being able to understand the future, is that the emotional impetus behind our foreign policy swung dramatically from over-optimism and complacency associated with that over-optimism in the 1990s to, to severe pessimism about the degree to which we could influence, uh, influence these challenges abroad, uh, and actually a, a sentiment that drove a sense of resignation or retrenchment or withdrawal uh, in the 2000s. And that shift, that shift in that emotional impetus was brought about by a number of factors. First of all, the over-optimism and complacency of the 90s associated with, again, this idea that an arc of history had guaranteed our primacy, uh, that was a setup. It was a setup for disappointments. Disappointments uh, in, in the form of the mass murder attacks of 9-11, when it, it became clear that our adversaries were not going to compete with us symmetrically. They were going to bypass what they saw as maybe our, you know, our differential advantages, especially in connection with our our tremendous defense capabilities and the, the capabilities of our military. And then the unanticipated length and difficulty of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we always want to debate, you know, should we have invaded Iraq? I think we ought to ask who the heck thought it would be easy uh, to, to consolidate military gains and get the sustainable outcomes in, in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And then, of course, we have the 2008 financial crisis. So I think in this crisis of confidence we have now, especially today, as we face this triple crisis of a pandemic, uh, a recession, uh, social divisions laid bare by the murder of George Floyd and the 
and the unrest that followed it and concerns about inequality of opportunity. As we face this crisis of confidence today, the world hasn't stopped. These crucial challenges haven't gone away. And our partisan politics is maybe, I think you could argue, you know, the, the worst it's been since maybe the 1830s <laughs> or, or the 1850s. And so I, I think that, that we have a lot of work to do. And I, what I hope the book will do, if it succeeds, is to try to generate a space for discussion of the crucial challenges we face as a way to, to deepen our understanding and then to begin conversations with you know, what, what can we agree on and what can we work together on to secure a better future. And I hope what the book will do is also be a force for reversing the polarization we see in our society today. Those are good objectives. Uh, my pessimism rests on the fact, as you just said, we've had 30 years, which means at least a generation plus of doing it the wrong way. That's a real challenge. You know, it's not a real challenge if we all work on it together. Alan, your podcast is a force for good in this connection. It's thoughtful. Uh, there, there are conversations that, that get at, at difficult topics, and there are conversations that come to, to a bit of a conclusion and end with a discussion about, okay, what can we do to make our world better, to strengthen our nation? And, and so I, I think all of us have some degree of convening power, whether it's in our family, in our community, if there are educators listening. We, we all have a role to play in really reversing this trend and then combating this problem of strategic narcissism with what, what I call in the book strategic empathy, a, a term I borrowed from my friend and, and great historian Zachary Shore. I'd like to pull on that thread in particular because I wanted to ask you about strategic empathy, which as I understand it, essentially means understanding your opponent in his own terms, not projecting what you want, but actually seeing how do they look at the world. Arguably, Wellington did that. Arguably, Custer did not do that quite as well. Let me ask you to reverse the Cameron. If you were, let's say, the Chinese leadership trying to understand the United States, which is your competitor, perhaps your enemy, how do you think the Chinese or the Russians or whomever would analyze the United States today as they figure out how to try to cope with us. Well, I, I think if, if you're by the Chinese, you mean the Chinese Communist Party leadership and Xi Jinping in particular, I think they think they're winning. I mean, I think Xi Jinping thinks that he's come out on top in the wake of the coronavirus. He's looking at the United States and how divided we are. He's looking at the vitriolic political discourse. Uh, and, you know, he's he's a dictator, right? He's the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party who envisions himself being the next Mao Zedong and a, a leader for life. And so what these people typically do is they surround themselves with those who are going to affirm their views. I think he's in a bit of an echo chamber now, but I think he is, he is confident uh, because he sees what he perceives as deep weaknesses in our society. But uh, I think he also is anxious. He's anxious because he always believed that his effort to take center stage to achieve the vision of national rejuvenation uh, really had to be done quickly because China had a fleeting window of opportunity. And I, I think that COVID-19 and the recession that brought about in China as well has magnified both the anxiety that he feels and his confidence. And this is why I think in the case of China, you see this acceleration of the party's aggressive behavior. Um, this is in connection with not only repressing the news of COVID-19 and and subverting the World Health Organization, but but the adding of insult to injury with this wolf warrior diplomacy uh, oriented mainly on on Europe and and the United States, with you know with the, the the aggressive actions on the Indian border as they bludgeon Indian soldiers to death, uh, the PLA does the People's Liberation Army on the Himalayan frontier, the passing of the national security law, and 
and the end of one country, two systems in Hong Kong and, and the repression of human freedom there, the acceleration of, of efforts to, to achieve the, the greatest land grab, so to speak, in, in the South China Sea in history. And, and then, of course, the aggression toward Taiwan and you know, toward Japan and the Sinkakus. It's extraordinary how aggressive the party has become, not only rhetorically, but with actions. And, and uh, you know, just this past week, we had the 71st anniversary of, of the, uh, the founding of the People's Republic of China. Uh, lots of jingoistic uh, nationalist language accompanied that. And uh, I believe it's because Xi Jinping feels emboldened, much like uh, the Chinese Communist Party leadership became emboldened after the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And they thought, hey, that model that we thought was so good, maybe it's not that good. Maybe our model's better. Maybe we should be more aggressive at exporting our model. And it, it's time maybe to take our rightful place uh, and displace the United States and, and the free world in connection with influence uh, globally. Well, in fact, China-U.S. is defining confrontation of the 21st century, at least the first part of the 21st century. Um, they're the emerging great power. We are the legacy great power. From today's vantage point, can you imagine a stable equilibrium between the two that does allow both countries to achieve what they want to achieve for their peoples in a way that does preserve the peace? not just between the two countries, but globally, that allows peace and prosperity, which, after all, is what we're all trying to accomplish. What would a stable equilibrium look like? Alan, I think you've already defined what really what we would, should try to achieve, right, which is to convince the Chinese Communist Party leadership that they can have enough. They can have enough without extinguishing the rights of their own population and without exporting their authoritarian mercantilist model at our expense. And to convince the party leadership of that, we have to just compete more effectively. I think as you, you've seen you know, the Trump administration do, it took a fundamentally different approach to China. I think a shift that was long overdue, you know, and, and these labels are they're not very helpful at times, but you know, the overall approach of cooperation and engagement under the assumption that China, having been welcomed into the international order, would play by the rules, would liberalize its economy, and as it prospered, it would liberalize its, its, its form of governance as well. Under Xi Jinping, the opposite's the case. And, and I think it, it, it's, uh, it's undeniable uh, that the, the assumptions that underpinned our policy, not without reason, uh, had, had become uh, demonstrably false. And, and so now we had to compete. And competition doesn't mean confrontation, right? Competition, I think, is the best way to avoid confrontation because I think you could argue that our disengagement are, are, you know, are, are, are from, from competition uh, under the idea that we could cooperate with the Chinese Communist Party had emboldened the party. And I think where that's really clear is in the South China Sea. And, and I think in some ways you can draw a direct line uh, from the unenforced red line in Syria in 2014 to the, you know, to the annexation of Crimea, the, the invasion of Ukraine, and, and, uh, and this land grab, so to speak, in the, in the South China Sea. Uh, the, the lack of a response, I, I think, emboldened the, the party further. And you've seen you know, how aggressive the party's been internally, initially, right? And this is, I'm referring to the, to the campaign of cultural genocide in Xinjiang, where it has over a million people in re-education camps, where, in which uh, Xi Jinping just last week said, oh, this is really you know, benevolent and beneficial to the population to, to, to re-educate them in, in, these, uh, in these concentration camps. Uh, you know, Uyghur birth rates are down, are down, 
are down 60%. Um, the, the parties destroyed 8,500 mosques and damaged about 7,500 more uh, and, and is doubling down on, on this behavior. So, so initially, Xi Jinping, as he came in, wanted to consolidate control, to extend and tighten the party's exclusive grip on power because what he feared is chaos and the loss of control. But now what you're seeing is the connection between that effort and the effort at national rejuvenation as it manifests itself in a very aggressive foreign policy and, and just brazen uh, aggression abroad. So I, I think that it is a period of increasing danger, but, but I think what would make it more dangerous is for us uh, to, to adopt again, you know, the language of cooperation, you know, the, the words that the Chinese Communist Party tried to get us to speak, right, which is, you know, which is win-win, you know, new type of great power relationship. Because once we said those words, and this is during the, uh, during the Obama administration, what they would use those words for is to bludgeon countries across the Indo-Pacific region and say, hey, look, the U.S. is endorsing this new type of, of great power relationship, and you're in our world now. As, as my, my interlocutor and counterpart, Yang Jinshu, would say and, and said in 2015 at a conference, he said to, to all the attendees there from Southeast Asia, hey, we are a big country and you are little countries. Get used to it. And so, so this, is a, this is a competition that we're in. And again, leading leadership aside, when you ask people in America, do they want to engage internationally, increasingly... Not so much. Increasingly, middle class under, under pressure, now more than ever with the pandemic, the story goes on. I worry a lot, not about your analysis, because I think it's spot on, about our capacity and willingness to execute on that, on the implied strategy. So, so there are two categories of recommendations and battlegrounds. One, one is, what can we do to improve our strategic competence? And the second category is what really you're talking about, which is how do we restore our strategic confidence, our, our confidence in our ability to implement a sustained and sustainable foreign policy. In each of these challenges, what I try to explain is the so what. You know, why should Americans care about this? What is at stake? And I think in explaining a foreign policy, a national security strategy to the American people, you have to begin with that. What is at stake? And then the second element of really what the American people need to know to get behind and support the foreign policy is, okay, what, what is the strategy? What is the strategy that will deliver a favorable outcome for the United States and the free world uh, at a cost that is acceptable to them? And I, I think it's immensely important to describe in connection with China, the, the tremendous benefits that we have from a free and open Indo-Pacific, but also the benefits we have in we and other free market economic systems and other democracies, the benefits we gain from being able to set the rules, right? And, and as we move toward the emerging data economy, China is really trying to gain control, to gain control of all the data in the world, right? And the recent indictments about the purchase and gathering of data for Americans in, you know, in bulk, uh, the sustained campaign of espionage that's aimed at exfiltrating data about individuals. This is the concern about you know, apps like TikTok. Uh, they, they gather all this information about us uh, and, and gather it by you know, with a, a Chinese company that has to, by law, act as an arm of the Chinese government. But what the party is also doing is, is engaging in a very sophisticated strategy to, to take control, uh, to be able to control communications infrastructure and physical infrastructure. 
And, uh, and this is why Chinese companies are operating both ends of the Panama Canal. Right? This is why, uh, th this is why uh, China is now present in the Bab al-Mandeb in, in one of the world's most important choke points. This is why they're, they're building a massive port that has absolutely zero, no, zero commercial uh, you know, application in, in Sri Lanka. Uh, this is why there are massive investments in in Malaysia and so forth, and and even in, in Israel, so or, or in Ecuador. I mean, it is an effort to try to gain control of of strategic locations uh, and to gain control of strategic infrastructure, physical uh, as well as data and communications infrastructure. One coda to that fairly long and depressing list of of active measures by the Chinese. This is a country which has never projected power beyond its border in its very long history. So this is all new to them. And one of the things I know from reading history uh, is that they're going to screw up. They're going to make a mistake because they have, they have to learn how to do this. And that is, again, a potential comparative advantage for the West because we have dealt globally uh, and, and projected power. Let me pull on one issue that you raised in, the, in your book, in the discussion of cyber, you in almost in passing, you wonder if the Google employees who rejected their companies uh, working for the U.S. government on a particular issue were aware that they had a similar contract with the Chinese Communist Party. In fact, you use the word they must not have known. And when I read that, I had a visceral reaction because my guess is that even if they did, they might not have cared because they no longer trust their government. And indeed, every attitude survey I read and see for a long time now describes the United States as a distrusting nation. We don't trust our leaders. We don't trust our institutions. We don't really trust each other, frankly. That's a long background to a very specific question. You spent more than three decades in an institution that in Vietnam had lost its way, where trust had been broken within the institution between leadership and soldiers. And then you were very much part of the leadership that rebuilt that army, that rebuilt the trust. So my question, are there lessons from that experience over the course of several decades of rebuilding trust in an institution that requires trust to function, just like our country does, that maybe could apply to the nation as a whole? That's, that's a great question. There was a real renaissance in the army. I benefited from it and then tried to maintain it. Uh, and, the, and those who put it together were a generation of officers who had seen uh, the, the army and, and the military profession standing in good stead and then saw the, the, the Vietnam War and policies associated with the Vietnam War drag the profession down. What, what they began with was a period of introspection. I think we're in this stage right now. Introspection and a, a real effort to assess the sources of weakness, weakness in our society, in our social fabric, but weaknesses, as you mentioned, in institutions. And then after that assessment, what, the, what these leaders did is they set out a positive vision. I would argue we're missing that now. We're missing it. I mean, I, I try to lay out part of it in the book with an emphasis on, on education. Education to really revive our, in many ways, self-respect, right? Self-respect, I quote Richard Rorty in the, in the book and and his observation that that, that self-respect is a requirement for self-improvement in individuals. And he says national pride is a requirement for improvement in nations. We need to restore our pride in our nation. And, you know, I think this is an area where we have a lot to work with. 
even as we tend to accentuate the negative these days, the racial divide, the inequality of opportunity, much, much of which has been laid by, bare by George Floyd's murder and the, and the aftermath to his murder. There's still a lot to celebrate. And I think what we can celebrate more than anything else is, hey, we have a say in how we're governed, right? I mean, in, in communist China, they don't have a say in how, in, in how they're governed. And so we can demand better. We can demand better from our elected officials and, and from our government. We do live under, under rule of law instead of uh, a, you know, a rule of, uh, you know, of a tribal system or a system that divides us, right? We should have confidence in who we are as Americans and in, in our identity. I think there's a real opportunity to reinvigorate uh, civics education and a sense of our history, acknowledging all the flaws in our historical record, but taking pride in the radical idea of the revolution that, you know, that, that sovereignty lies with the people, recognizing the, uh, the great gift of, of unalienable rights in our, in our Declaration of Independence, uh, the rights enshrined in our, in our Constitution, but then also recognizing that the blight of slavery was, was not removed until our most destructive war in history almost 100 years later. And then we can still be disappointed, though, because, you know, obviously the failure of Reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow, the rise of the KKK, uh, and, and the imposition of, of de jure inequality of opportunity and de jure segregation until, again, another reason to celebrate, civil rights movement of the, of the 1960s uh, was still obviously much, much work to do uh, to, to address de facto inequality of opportunity. And we're seeing frustrations about that today. But what I, what I think is we're seeing today is the results of, uh, of this move toward a polarization in our society uh, based in, in large measure on our lack of pride in who we are as a people. You know, our, our polarization is magnified by social media, as you alluded to already. You know, the sense that we identify more and more now in a partisan way or based on you know, based on, you know, identity politics uh, rather than uh, a common a common sense of, of who we are. And so in the army, our army restored pride, our military restored pride after Vietnam through emphasis on education, training, higher expectations of each other, a strengthening of the covenant, the covenant that the, the military has with, with our society. We built back up our self-respect as the first step in, in regaining the respect of, of those in whose name we fight and serve. And, and I think that as you allude to, and I'll have to think more about this, but the, the most important question is, okay, what do we do about it? How do we build back confidence in our institutions? That to me is a critical question to go full circle to where we started. We can't make long-term strategy. We can't execute long-term strategy if we aren't self-confident if we haven't renewed our own social contract, the equivalent of the covenant within the military, within the army, rather, it is that social contract which is, in my judgment, if not broken, shattered, or at least cracked. Cracked is a better word than shattered. You, you can undo crack. Shattered is pretty hard to undo. And, and indeed, I think that is a challenge for leaders uh, like you, like people in other institutions, uh, for educators, uh, and ultimately for our politicians, which is where we expect our leadership from. I want to thank you for your leadership. I want to thank you for this conversation. Again, Battlegrounds is a book that people ought to read, but they ought to not just read it, they ought to think about it, actually. And it, it is that introspection, I think, as to use your word, that absent that, we're going to continue to stumble. And stumbling is dangerous in this world. 
So again, thank you very much for everything you're doing for the book and for your time today. Alan, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments and please subscribe to other episodes in the podcast app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.